0: We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Uh, picking up where we left off last week. As you recall, um, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians are technically a unit. They are dealing with one major question that the Corinthian church has asked Paul to answer, and that is, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, if you think about it, if there are Jewish people asking this question, it's a natural question since you had the, the kosher uh, uh, concepts within the Jewish faith of eating only certain kinds of meat. So they had their own butcher shops, their own bakeries. But then you, now you have the Greeks, who are also part of the church, and they're saying, well, we are free under Christ. We are not bound by the law, neither are the Jews bound by the law. And yet, are is this food tainted? And if it's tainted and we eat it, are we taking on impurity into our bodies? And one little trivia note, there was the concept circulating that demons could enter a body through the food <coughs> they ate so if they ate something tainted were they bringing in demons which if you think about some of the the superstitions of the era if someone got sick after eating something what did they blame it on not lack of refrigeration because they didn't have refrigeration they blamed it on demons getting in the food so it's it's a legitimate question absolutely legitimate question this particular passage is fairly long um, you have all of it in front of you it's also a little disconcerting when in my research I come across an article called difficult bible passages first corinthians 9 19 through 23 <laughs> great so we will be tackling that section uh... as we we can get to it today so if you want to um, break down the differences between chapters 8, 9, and 10, and again, I emphasize this almost every time I bring it up, but chapter breaks are not inspired. They were added later. So when the letter was written, he didn't say, oh, section 8 and then wrote, section 9 and then wrote. He just wrote the paragraphs together. We broke it down later, partly for to be able to find things, but also to create thought units so that we could study them. Chapter eight could be seen as Paul stating a principle. Chapter nine can be seen as Paul illustrating the principle. And chapter 10, he restates the principle. So if you wanna look at it in that simplistic of a manner, you can because it kind of makes sense the way it's laid out. So he stated the principle that, yeah, you can, <clears throat> you can eat the meat. It's not a question of can you, the question is should you? Because if there is a weaker member among you, and let's just, for lack of better example, let's say Carl is the new Christian. And he it comes from the culture that uh, ate meat to idols. He thinks, I should, never, I should never do that. That would be terrible. So then he goes over to your house. And you're serving meat that you bought at the pagan grocery store. And you are offended that this pillar of the church would be doing that to you. Now you doubt whether or not his faith is real. which that makes you doubt your faith is real. And you have this whole thing. So Paul says, if anyone sees who, you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And that's the end of chapter 8. The next verse is what you have in front of you. Paul says, am I not free? It's an interesting thing you would even bring that up. I mean, was that even a question? No, Paul is speaking as any orator. He's speaking rhetorically. Uh, Yeah, I'm free in Christ. In fact, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I know the laws. I know all 613 of them. i followed them. But I am free not to follow them. But then he says, am I not an apostle? Which brings up the thought here was his authority being questioned in the church. Were there those in the group saying, well, why'd you write Paul? I mean, aren't we of Apollos? Aren't we of Peter? Aren't we of Jesus? Remember, that was an issue he wrote about in the very beginning. So why are you even, uh, you know, appealing to Paul? He, he, He just claims he's an apostle. He's not really an apostle. Well, Paul goes through a couple things. Have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ, which was one of the criteria of being an apostle, that you actually had seen him? and are not you, the church, my workmanship in the Lord. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, the fact that this church even exists, because I went there and I established it, and you know that. Don't mess with this. I thought it was interesting for him to use a phrase like, you are the seal. Well, we all know pretty much what that would mean. It's that wax seal with a stamp put in it to signify either, uh, let's see, I wrote it down here, security, so you could seal a scroll and if the seal is broken, you know someone else has seen it. You can also use it to show provenance. In other words, it came from this point to this point and this point and each seal indicated that. It it can also uh, maintain authority. This is from King George, boom. Wow, no one else has that signet ring. He's the one who who stamped its approval. It is interesting, but William Barclay noted that in some cases, some of the ancient wills of estate planning had seven seals to ensure its authority, its provenance, and its security. Now, I just immediately thought, oh, how many seals were there in the book of Revelation? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I had never made that connection before, but like here we are over in 1 Corinthians, and boop, it's like, oh, cool. Anyway, we come back to the text. Verse 3, this is my apologia. That's the Greek word there, my apologia. That's where we get the word uh, the apologists to make a defense to those who would examine me." That word there, examine, is the same word used when Jesus was examined by Pilate, the same word when Peter and John were examined on trial in Acts chapter 4, and the same word when Paul is examined by the Romans in Acts chapter 28. These are legal terms, court-related legal terms to be uh, be examined and to prevent a, present a defense. <clears throat> and Paul goes right into his defense. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Wait, stop there for a second. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Isn't, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Remember what we were talking about in chapter 7? about being single and about having a wife he brings it up again in context he's not just talking about himself he's talking about the other leaders in the church and it's evident that they were married this is one of the few times we have proof in the New Testament that these other apostles had families It also emphasizes that Paul did not have a wife. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought it up in this phraseology. But when he says, as do the other apostles, does that mean all of them or some of them? Well, we don't know for sure, because there's some of them we've lost the details of their personal history. We kind of know where they traveled, but did they travel with a family? We don't know. But we do know Cephas, or Peter, was married, as he talks about his mother-in-law. We also know that the brothers of Jesus were married. That would be James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, who wrote the book of James. So if, in actually the literal meaning in Greek, and for that phrase in the ESV writes a believing wife, if you have a different translation, I'd be curious to know what yours says. The literal meaning says, do we not have the right to take along a sister in the Lord, comma, a wife. So the phrase believing that the ESV used to translate, they actually are translating the phrase, a sister in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That's a, we would think that's a very modernistic term. Oh, we have sisters in the Lord and we have brothers in the Lord. Actually, it's in the Greek. It's been around for 2,000 years. What does your translation there say? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Oh, verse 5, okay. It says uh, something wife. Yeah, it just says uh, a believing wife. A believing wife this in your is, translation? I V. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, That seems to be a deviation on the theme about working for a living, but I also brought up the question of how did they know Barnabas? Did Barnabas visit Corinth? Not according to what we know. They didn't go there on the first missionary journey together. They went to Galatia and came back, and then they broke up and Barnabas went to Crete. Could it be that there was letters from Barnabas circulating as well? Could it be that Barnabas did go over to the Greek peninsula and visit? We don't know. But why would he be referring to Barnabas if they didn't know who he was? I thought that was interesting. One of those other one of the many 10,000 questions we have in our, when we get in line to talk to God uh, when we go to heaven. What did you mean by that passage in 1 Corinthians 9, 6? And he'll say, seriously? <laughs> Don't we have more important things to do right now? Anyway. But he says, I, you know, are they, Barnabas and I, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And then he goes into three examples of people who work for a living. The soldier... Who serves a soldier at its own expense? No one. Every soldier is paid. And if you remember when we talked about uh, being the salt of the earth back in Matthew chapter five, uh, soldiers were often paid in salt because it was a valuable commodity and it was something they could use very quickly. And it was a one, one many of many ways of being, uh, being paid. But who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Well, you know, the farmer will take from their crop so they can eat too, and then they take the rest and they sell it in the marketplace. And now who tends a flock, a shepherd, without getting some of the milk from the cows or the goats or whatever. Uh, these are examples of those who are paid for their work. He keeps going. Do I, not say, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And let's, before we read the, the quotation, does not the law say the same? What? What theme are we on now? I thought we were on the theme of don't eat meat given to idols. What in the world is Paul talking about right now? Has he changed the subject on us? Or is it still the same subject? I know this is the I've had a chance to meditate on this for a while, and it's the first time for you guys, but it seems to me his logic turns from one topic, and now he's talking about ministers being paid. I probably read or heard five, maybe six different sermons about why churches should pay their pastors, based on this chapter. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And it was so funny, when John MacArthur was preaching on it, he kept saying, I didn't choose the passage today. It is just because we're going through Corinthians. I'm not asking for more money. He must have said that nine times. In the transcript of his sermon, I was only—he says, "Please don't give me more money." It's actually a quote in his sermon. Wow. Don't pay me more; I'm fine. But pay me. Paul, yeah, pay me, yeah. <laughs> but Paul is basically saying there is this idea of being paid. Well, he'll get to—he's going in a roundabout way, getting to his point, and we'll come to it in a section second. But I just wanted to stop there because if we're just kind of blithely reading the text, we're not really reading it. Because Paul seemingly has changed the subject. But he really hasn't. And we'll see that in a second. So, come to verse 9. Because he says, Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Which is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Now, the picture there is they would have these husks of grain, and it's a lot of work to <coughs> grind it out and you know pull it all apart and get the various pieces to, to turn it into a usable uh, meal. So they would tie a, a, a an ox to a turnstile and throw all the husks on the ground, and that. Ox would just walk round and round and round, in a circle, just grind it up with his, the weight of his feet. And they said it would be cruel if you muzzled the ox so he couldn't stop and take a snack when he was hungry. But if you muzzled him, you just make the ox angry and frustrated, and probably it would just probably stop and go to sleep. It wouldn't work because he's he's an, an angry ox is not a happy thing. So, out of curiosity, I went over to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and looked at the quote. In your spare time, you can go over there yourself and look at it. Because the first three verses of chapter 25 is measuring out how many lashes to give someone who's done something wrong. A human. And the number is 40. And then comes verse 4 do not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain. And then it goes into other issues in Deuteronomy of meeting out punishment. So there's this quote, do not muzzle an ox when they're treading out the grain in the middle of this recitation on punishment for doing bad things. What in the world was Moses talking about? Because the quote has nothing to do with oxen. It has nothing to do with grain. It had everything to do with justice. You mete out the appropriate amount of justice and no more. And he's using a phrase or a saying or a metaphor, just like with an ox. You don't muzzle him when he's working. You don't mistreat him so you don't mistreat you punish but you don't mistreat so Paul pulls this verse not out of context but it was out of context in the first place and he's quoting it over here and I had many people saying including John Calvin saying why did Paul quote this verse he could have quoted Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verse fifteen, which says, "Pay the worker his wages before sunset." Did he just forget? Which quotation? No, because he didn't cite the verse. He quoted the passage on purpose, and it just it just seems so odd. And I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm fu- fu- you know fussing around with this because I'm reading it. And I went, "Oh yeah, okay," you know, I understand what he's trying to say here. But then I went and looked at its context in Deuteronomy, which was weird. And then I came back and then reading Calvin, Calvin goes, well, why didn't he quote this other verse? It's much more appropriate, seemingly. And then there are those who jump on this verse and saying, uh, well, you know, this means is that, that God cares for animals and he does, he does care for creation. But as Warren Wiersbe says, since oxen cannot read, this verse was not written for them.
1: <laughs> so I
0: thought was very funny. And then because it's a metaphor, where John Calvin further wrote, we must not make the mistake of thinking that Paul means to explain the commandment allegorically. For some empty-headed creatures make this an excuse for turning everything into an allegory. They can change dogs into men, trees into angels, and convert the whole of Scripture into an amusing game. If you think about it, the context of Deuteronomy is justice, to do the right thing in the right situation. And he's saying, if God through his inspiration is saying, if you're willing to take care of the ox, then more so you should be taking care of the human being. Don't give up on the idea of being fair to everyone. Verse 10, does he certainly not speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope. The thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, shouldn't you be paying us? Wouldn't that be so much to ask? If others share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? And then Paul absolutely nails it by saying, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. He, this is where he's going. I have the right to even demand from you that I be paid for my work among you. But I have chosen not to even ask. Could it be there were those in the congregation that were condemning Paul because he wasn't being paid? You see, there's an entire group of orators who would travel from town to town and they would, stand, they would find either a patron or find wealthy people, and they would make their grand orations, either on philosophy, theology, whatever, and then they pass the hat. Or they would be invited over to the patron for dinner, and they would be fed and housed and clothed. Why? Because those orators were the entertainment of the day. They were the television of the culture. They were the... Um, the Netflix of the culture. You paid for your entertainment. and that's not to say Paul was entertainment, but he's in that same world, so to speak, where he's providing a service that's not uh, by my wares. He is taking care of people spiritually. And he says, I have the right to ask that of you, but I choose not to. Instead, we endure anything, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then he comes back to where we were, I was asking, did he change the subject? He's still on point. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who share in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In other words, even the priests are paid. You just don't see it. As you bring the sacrifice, you lay the animal on, they cut part of it, burn that, and then they go cook the rest for their meal that night. And anything they have left over, they sell to the, you know, either the Jewish butcher shop, or if it's pagan, they sell it to the pagan butcher shop. That's how they made their living. They didn't, the priests were not salaried by the state or by in, you know, we have a different setup here because that's just the way it's grown up in the American church. But that's how, how, it, how it works. My understanding is that in the olden pioneer days, most pastors were not f- fully employed by their church. And they survived because when they would visit the home to pray with them, they would hand them fresh eggs or they would hand them some food or something. And then that's how they ate and that's how they lived. They did not do it to become rich very few people go into the ministry to become wealthy seriously I mean there are some who would think oh that's an easy way to make a living but that's not why they're doing it but they still have to eat they still have to pay their bills they have a light bill every week every month they have a phone bill they have all these other things they have to take care of, and so we should take care of them. And yet Paul's basically saying, verse 16, I've made no use of any of these rights. I'm not writing these, these, these things to secure such a provision. I'd rather die if anyone deprived me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, it is for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. As he puts it, the necessity, it also can mean obligation or requirement or one translation or <coughs> paraphrase says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Absolutely compelled. I can do nothing else. I've talked about it before and I'll just bring it up again. Uh, Charles Spurgeon in his book, Lectures to My Students, has an early chapter about the call to being a preacher. And it's when I read that chapter, I realized I was not called to be one. I was not called to be a pastor, which caused me to really rethink my entire um, academic career, (laughs) because I was in the pastoral studies at the time, Bible, Bible major. And it just threw me, because his statement was, the only reason for you to become a pastor is if you can do nothing else. Your call is so compelling. You are driven by it. There's nothing but the salvation of souls is in front of you. And I look, read that and went, I went, I cannot engineer that thought in my head. And that's where I thought more I should go into teaching and you know everything else. The problem was, is that Lisa and I, who were both in the Bible department, knew people who were in the Bible department because they could do nothing else. They were failures in everything else they had done. And they went, well, this is an easy degree. Let's get that one.
1: There were failures there too.
0: <laughs> and the scary part is, you realize, a lot of them became pastors afterwards. And Anyway, um, so here he's saying... Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'd rather die if anybody deprives me of this. That's pretty strong wording. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with stewardship. Which is like being a steward of a household. You have all of this to take care of. But then what is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to take full use of my right in the gospel? This is interesting because why is Paul, and I'm not asking this rhetorically, I want you to answer this question, why is Paul, why has he spent 18 verses on this? in the midst of a discussion of should I eat meat presented idols. What's going on here? This seems to be an excursus or a side uh, topic. But Paul is making some very strong statements about his calling as a pastor. And he's not even in Corinth. Remember, he's on the other side of the, the Aegean Sea. He's over in Ephesus writing this and he's writing back to the people who knew him. But what's going on here? Why would Paul be so adamant in talking about wages, payment, justice? I mean, what's going on here? What do you think? Well, let it, I am recording silence for those of you who are listening to the audio. This isn't an easy question, because most often when this is studied, it's pulled out of the context, and it's done as a sermon on paying your pastor, or it's done as a sermon on something else. But in the context, what is he trying to say?
1: The other apostles, they're being observed by every community, Greek or Jew, and what they eat, what they do, and, and especially what he eats. Especially in the Greek, he's to the Gentiles. So if one church starts gossiping on one faction, preaching that gets spread somewhere else, and his whole ministry can be destroyed, our walls be set in front of him before he even reaches somewhere, and he has to keep contracting correcting also that theology that detracts from that but it's his right as a you know to you know what i'm
0: saying it's, its well it's his right as the leader to re-emphasize his leadership position and his role as the pastor to them right is that kind of what you're saying well it's
1: that and the fact that he himself has always put in that position of demonstrating hmm. which you are going to be coming to later but right. it's but it's
0: but it has to do with just, it has to with balance. Mm-hmm. Carl. Okay. Uh, could it be just because you have a right, uh, does that mean you always uh, enjoyed exercise that right? Or are there other extenuating circumstances that you would subjugate your rights for a greater good? Good point, because he had the right to eat the meat that's offered to idols. But, but he chose yeah. not to out of love for the weaker brother mm-hmm. in that situation. In last week's uh, class, we had talked about the, uh, the Muslim who had converted and uh, declined to eat the ham that was offered him at a, as a reception. And the pastor said to the guy, well, you know, you can eat the ham. He goes, oh, I know. I have the right to eat the ham. I also have the right not to eat the ham. Because every time I go back home, where I'm still allowed to speak of Christ, the first thing my father asks is, have those people poisoned you with the pig? And so I've chosen to not eat the ham, even though I have the freedom to eat it, by virtue of my witness and my faith. Because if I make that step, then I have closed off the opportunity to talk to my father. Isn't that interesting? The kind of things you have to decide in these contexts. But here's Paul, seemingly off topic, and yet he's kind of on topic. That's what makes this whole excursus uh, fascinating to me, because he spends 18 verses. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, in Paul time, that's three seconds. But for us, it's a long time on this authority issue. And he's, he's emphasizing that he's not pursuing ease, which is freedom. He's pursuing souls because he is a slave to Christ. Martin Luther put it this way. A Christian is perfectly, a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none other than Christ a Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all we are servants of each other therefore we make those sacrifices for the cause of Christ Uh, one pastor tried to make it in put it in baseball terms and you know you kind of these metaphors and allegories tend to break down but you know bases are loaded Um, all you need is one run to win the batter who is if he gets a hit he will win the National League batting championship and it's the last game of the season and it's the last at bat in the ninth inning and he just needs one more hit to win and be the best hitter in all of baseball and he gets up to bat and the sign is to lay down a bunt. And he's going, but what about me? You might have to explain what a bunt is to some people. So, to some people, it's a sacrifice. You bunt the ball and you get thrown out of first so the, guy, the runners can advance and you win the game. In other words, if he does the right thing, he'll win the game. If he makes the hit, if he gets a hit they will win the game, but he's being told to sacrifice himself. So he has to decide. Do I follow the rule, sacrificing myself, or not? Yeah, the metaphor breaks down in many ways, as all sports metaphors do. But it's that same idea. Paul is saying, I have freedom to do whatever I wish, but I choose not to. So we come to the passage that's declared a difficult passage. Let's read it first, and then we'll come back into it and explore this together a little bit. Starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. (laughs) To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not as being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Which is the phrase everybody quotes that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. So we have a a challenge here in trying to determine what does Paul mean by this. Some try to, uh, when they study this passage, they talk about the phrase contextualization or cultural accommodation versus compromise. Mm -hmm. These are not the same thing. They can look the same on the surface, but they are not. And we have to be very careful we don't go from contextualization to compromise. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it becomes interesting When you're trying, because he says, when I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. When I'm with the weak, I'm I'm the weak. When I'm with those without the law, I'm without the law. When I'm under the law, I'm under the law. Does that mean he's a hypocrite? Some would say that's true, because he's not the same in all places. But you have to then define what do you mean by being the same? This is uh, brought out in many different ways. For example, this became kind of at the heart of the worship wars, which began 30 years ago. And do you bring contemporary music into the church? Is that cultural accommodation or is that compromise? Well, some said it was compromise and got angry about it. Some said it was cultural accommodation and said, what's wrong with it? Hmm. And it still percolates on a regular basis it can be uh, let's think let's just uh, let's take our church society forward 10 years from now forward how does the church deal with marijuana after it's legal everywhere in and all cases what does the church say because the Bible doesn't say anything about marijuana Uh oh Is it compromise or is it cultural accommodation? Because here's why, I brought this up just purely to get you stirred up (laughs) because opium used to be sold over the counter in the grocery store, in the drugstores. Turn of the uh, 20th century. The original Coca-Cola was named coca for cocaine, the coca leaf. There was cocaine in the original Coca-Cola. It was called uh, brain tonic. Now, granted, they said the amount was so small, you would have to drink, you know, drink about 30 gallons a day to get a buzz. But you could. So, what is it wrong? In fact, uh, you could get opium over the counter at the local Walgreens or the grocery store at, for Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. Or Kickapoo's Indian oil had opium in it. It wasn't until 1906 when the Food and Drug Administration was formed by Teddy Roosevelt and he signed it into law that there needed to be some sort of regulation because the stuff was everywhere. And they were aware of some of its implications. But I, I was reading some of this history and I'm thinking, where was the church in this? They didn't even talk about it. It wasn't an issue. So, oh, well, that's kind of silly. You go, okay, Steve, whatever. You're making, you're just, you're just stirring us up just because you can. Yes, you're right. Um, but you also have things, so what if you go to another culture? Um, let me find the quote here. Uh, as I was reflecting on Paul's zeal, this is a pastor uh, in his sermon, uh, regarding the proclamation of the gospel, I remember a restaurant in Burstown, Berchtesgaden, Germany, where they had a fish tank stocked with trout. Patrons would point to the fish they wanted. A waiter would use a small net, catch the fish, and it would be prepared in the kitchen and served at the table. I ordered trout, which came to the table with head and tail intact, one eye staring lifelessly at me. My son, who was four years old, was appalled. (laughs) Having the fish eye intact was particularly distasteful to him. And when I mentioned this to a German friend, she responded, Oh, in Germany, we think of the fish eye as a delicacy. I remember when I was in college and we went to Israel and we were on the Sea of Galilee and we were served fish. And it was served whole. And it's the first time in my life i had ever had a fish served to me with its eyes staring at me. Yeah, i like, ugh, I didn't want to eat it. So the guy says, so if you were to visit Germany and your host were to serve you a bowl of fish eyes, would you eat them? I'm confident that Paul would have given his best. <laughs> he would do whatever he could, short of compromising his faith, to observe the customs of the group in which he found himself. Another example, and this was really... Mm, We're far enough away from your eating, so hopefully you'll be alright. When the US was in Vietnam, American officers and and NCOs tried to do whatever they could to enhance US and Vietnamese relations. In some cases, that meant eating a meal at a Vietnamese home. It was not unusual for the Vietnamese host to serve something they called the thousand-year egg. Anybody heard of this? regarded to the, by the Vietnamese as a delicacy but decidedly unattractive to Americans. A thousand-year egg, the yolk has turned dark green and the white is brown and emits an odor of ammonia and sulfur. The Vietnamese also served a delicacy called BALUT, B-A-L-U-T, which is a fertilized egg with a nearly developed embryo that's boiled and eaten in the shell. So, If your host were to serve balut or a thousand-year egg, would you eat it? Our officers and NCOs did their best. They did so to enhance US-Vietnamese relationships, and I'm confident that Paul would have done his best as well, in the hope that he could win some to Christ. So I came across uh, one of many books in my library called Culture to Culture called Mission Trips, Do's and Don'ts. And this woman actually went through every country in the world and talks about some of the things that you do and do not do in that culture as an American. Mm -hmm. So I bookmarked the French section. (laughs) because I wanted to ask if this was still true, because this book's about 14, 15 years old. Gestures. The most vulgar sign you can use is slapping your palm over a closed fist. Yep, that's true. Who knew? So don't do that in front of Tom. He might <laughs> think you're not being very delicate. I know everybody's going.
1: Demonstrate. <laughs> closed fist, and slap don't your palm. Over. <laughs> oh no, no. no, no.
0: <laughs> but that's considered offensive in French. In the French. In France. You also must be discreet about sneezing and blowing your nose. Do not comb your hair, use toothpicks, or chew gum in public. Not so much? Not so much. Okay. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Mm -hmm. Really? Because I came across another fellow who was talking about when he was in Romania preaching, he prayed with his hands in his pockets in front of the congregation. And the pastor quickly ran up and whispered to him in his ear while he was praying, and everyone's eyes were closed, get your hands out of your pockets. It's offensive. I don't know where that came from. Uh, it must be some European thing. My guess, it may have come from the era uh, as I was trying to describe it. This came from the idea of showing you, you were unarmed. And you didn't have, a, have a, uh, the idea of shaking an open hand I don't have a sword in my mm-hmm. hand. We can be friends. If you have your hands in your pocket, you don't know what you're holding. Mm. Would that be possible, or is there something more to it? That is it, because you still keep your hands on the table <laughs> during a meal. You never put one hand on your lap because you could be holding a knife or something <laughs> in the olden days. Mm. So you keep your, keep your hands on the table. On the table. Interesting. Both, both, hands. both hands on the table at all time. Insight. Um, They say, well, while the French use gestures, we suggest you employ very little gesturing. use your face to express meaning. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Um, The lady who wrote this, I actually met her um, when she was pitching this book way back then. Um, I had nothing to do with the finished product. I ended up turning her down. But um, she had written a business book on manners and cultural things throughout the world and that was her job her job was in global communications between businesses what are the appropriate things to do so and I may have told this story before but I'm going to relate it again Um, it was a Texas businessman had been dealing with a a Japanese business group and they had consummated the deal so he threw together a celebration deal a dinner that night he said the Japanese cohort walked into the room, which the Texas businessman, thinking he was being modern, decorated it in black and white. Just beautiful, you know, everything was black and white, it was the theme. And he said he watched every person in the Japanese cohort, their faces fell. And they all slumped down and went and sat and were very uncommunicative during the dinner, and just, and then left. And the deal fell apart. And so he called this woman, flew her into his office in Texas, and said, I haven't touched a thing. I want you to tell me what happened. And she walked in. Oh, you told them the deal was done, that the deal was over. Because black and white is death and funerals. And it's how they do it in Japan. You can smile and say, the deal's done. Yes, it is. And then you symbolically tell them we're no longer working together. And the guy goes, I thought it looked pretty. <laughs> and he had to try to <coughs> resurrect the deal. So you have some of these cultural things. Contextualization, cultural accommodation. Here's another issue where this comes up in the Christian life. Now, granted, these are just more of interesting and more... <coughs> trivia, but what about Wycliffe Bible translators who go into a culture and are trying to translate the English Bible into that language but there is no word for that Greek or Hebrew word in their language the most famous one is the um, this people group that is out in the plains, they don't have mountains they've never seen a mountain In their entire life, all they've had is desert for every horizon as far as they look. And so when you talk about Jesus going up on the mountain or on the hill of Calvary, they don't know what that means. So they had to change the words to like a big tree to accommodate So there are those who are criticizing these translators for compromising in their accommodation, that they're actually not translating purely the scriptures as written. Are they right or are they wrong? That may be a debate for another day, but this goes on all the time. In your translation uh, work into French, do you have where you have to make those determinations as much, because it is a Western culture, not too much. But we've all heard of these situations where that word just doesn't mean the same thing in their language, and yet that's the Greek or Hebrew word. So what do you do? So there we have questions when we come up with this, even this is the guy who wrote the article on difficult Bible passages, he says some cultists have taken the text to mean that Paul is saying that anything goes when we try to win others to Christ. One American cult, the Children of God cult of the 60s and 70s, they used what they called flirty fishing, where women could be hookers for Jesus as a way to bring men into the fold of the children of God by using their bodies. Now granted, they're a cult and they're not around anymore and they were aberration, but they use this passage as their defense for that kind of activity. As D.A. Carson put it, we can easily hear Paul saying, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile "I became a Gentile. We cannot imagine him saying, I became a gossip to minister to the gossips, or I became an adulterer to administer to adulterers. In other words, while he's saying he's not under the law as other Jews were, he certainly does not mean to suggest that he is completely free of all God's demands and quotation. I mean, someone said, well, then how do you minister to those in prison? You have no context. You, you don't understand them. So you need to get arrested so you understand what it means like to be in jail. That's not the point. Um, what you're Not what you're trying to do. Carson further goes and he says the person who lives by endless rules and who forms his or her self-identity by conforming to those rules simply cannot flex at all. By contrast the person without roots without heritage, without self-identity, and without non-negotiable values is not flexing. They are simply being driven hither and yon by the vagaries of every whimsical opinion that passes by. Some people may fit in, but they don't win anyone. They hold nothing stable or solid enough to win others to it. So here's, it goes back to Lisa mentioned earlier, is the idea of balance. There has to be a balance in everything. Paul is not saying, hey, when I'm with the Baptists, I act like a Baptist. Well, what you do is, if you're in a Baptist congregation, there are certain things you're just not going to discuss because it will then change their uh, ear away from what you're saying and to what you said or did. When you're, you know, you can make, if you're with the Baptists, you can joke about the Presbyterians. If you're Presbyterians, you can joke about the Baptists. And we all, you know, we make a lot of denominational jokes and they're all very funny. But you can insert denomination here, to, and speakers do that. But what you're not wanting to do is to go into a Catholic church and talk how horrible the Pope is, and how they should all give up everything they've ever learned. That wouldn't be an appropriate way. You can have the dialogue and maybe show and talk about justification by faith alone, but you don't come in and say, "What is you know, why did we do that liturgy? That was stupid. That's just being offensive and it has no point. But what you don't do is you don't make a public conversion to Catholicism in order to present the gospel to Catholics. That is compromise. There's a difference. And we just have to be, we have to watch and watch. Man, the society keeps throwing at us new twists and turns. I mean, right now, it's the whole gay movement, the whole idea of what gay rights are. They're throwing that at us, is that if you do not compromise, we won't listen to you. And you want to say, okay, then you have some churches saying, okay, yeah, we'll just just make it a non-issue. That's why I appreciated what our church did last week about marriage. Just a firm, bam, this is what marriage is, this is how God has ordained it, this is how God has appointed it. And if you don't like that, well, then let's talk about why. But you, if you're not going to accept what Scripture has to say, we have a different conversation to have. And those, those are the issues where we do this. N.T. Wright puts it this way This statement by Paul has sometimes misunderstood as though it meant that Paul were a mere pragmatist, a spin doctor. Twisting his message this way and that to suit different audiences, and that's not what he is saying. His message remains constant. It is the messenger who swallows his pride, who gives up his rights, who changes his freedom into slavery. Woe betide those who trim the message so they don't have to trim themselves. And I think that's why Paul spent so much time prior to this saying, this is who I am. I have the right to do whatever I want within the freedom of Christ, but I choose not to for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, and so when I am with the Jew, I am, as a Jew would understand, for the sake of the gospel. It's not compromising it. He's contextualizing it so they will listen to his message. And it looks like we've run out of time. So let me end our time with prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to explore this passage. So often, Lord, you just ask us to show common sense, to have balance and to... Put ourselves and take ourselves out of every formula so that you are prominent, that your message, your love, your grace is what we talk about, not our holiness, because we are not only holy because of you. And this is that predominating principle in all of this that we've been studying, Lord. Help us to just grasp it once again as we move into our time of worship and celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.